Hi everyone and welcome to Himal Podcasts. I'm Raisa Vikramatunga and today we're speaking with Meghna Mehta. Meghna is an environmental anthropologist whose research focuses on the Sundarban. Today, we're going to chat with her about how this complex and fragile ecosystem has been impacted by crises like Cyclone Amphan, the coronavirus, as well as whether the state response in terms of assistance to this region is part of a broader cyclical pattern. Welcome to Himal Podcast, Meghna. Thank you, Raisa. Thank you for having me. Could you tell us a little bit about the current situation in the Sundarban after Cyclone Amphan made landfall? Sure. So the the super cyclone Amphan hit the Sundarbans on the night of uh, the 20th of May, and it is the first wall of defense uh, for the cyclones that form in the Bay of Bengal Delta. We had social media flooded with images from Kolkata um, and even the sort of Netaji Shubhas Chandrabose airport in Kolkata was flooded, you had trees uprooted, but there was very little coverage and knowledge of the sort of rural Bengal hinterlands. And the Sundarbans Delta is located in the borders of India and Bangladesh. However, in the Indian side, the Sundarbans is both a region and a forest. So it's um, a forested landscape. It's a mangrove ecology. Um, however, it also has 54 inhabited islands and it's very densely populated. Um, and so so while we were hearing about the havoc um, and the devastation it caused to Kolkata, we had no idea really in the first few days um, of of how this had affected the Sundarban Islands. People's homes have broken, embankments um, have breached, which has allowed the ingress of salt water. This has really damaged property fields and homes for people who live in the Sundarbans. Um, so it's been, there's this just been colossal damage. And as we know, this cyclone came after two months of the lockdown um, imposed because of COVID. So it's a sort of intersecting series of crises that have hit the Sundarbans. You mentioned COVID-19. How has the spread of COVID-19 affected those who've already been impacted by the cyclone? Has there been any government assistance? So it's been quite varied. Um, Sundarbans is a really large area and it is very hard in some ways to cover these inhabited islands. Um, So relief was firstly very, very slow. This was a large part due to the lack of connectivity in where some of these relief organizations are based, which is Kolkata, which was also hit by the cyclone. Um, but in terms of the Sundarbans, uh, it's now, as we speak, you know, several weeks in after the cyclone is hit, it is still very patchy. There are voluntary organizations, um, smaller grassroots organizations that have been involved and in trying to provide systematic um, relief. But it's a very large area with a population of five million people and growing. So um, it's it's government relief has been extremely slow in arriving um, and there are some just absolutely basic necessities like drinking water which in several blocks of the Sundarbans is still unavailable so um, yes and this kind of goes to a much longer history where people residing in the Sundarbans have been ignored and the politics of care 
for who cares for the Sundarbans and which forms of government and which bodies of governance will come in at a moment like this is um, actually uh, something which is not just in this particular moment, but in the past also um, the residents have been ignored for a very different kind of politics of life that value certain lives over others. So I know you've been studying the Sundarban for some time and I've been reading about how it's an area of constantly shifting and rising tides. So could you tell us a little bit about why this area is so important ecologically? Mm. So, yes, so it's a mangrove forest, um, which actually internationally, the Sundarbans is famous because it's a habitat for the Royal Bengal Tiger. Um, What it's lesser known for is that it's also home to 5 million people. Um, But the fact that it is a landscape, the only mangrove landscape in the world, actually, which is home to the tiger, makes it a global conservation hotspot. So the the international attention which the Sundarbans gets in terms of biodiversity conservation has been in large part due to its very unique ecosystem and its flora and fauna, which has been kind of constantly written about even in colonial times, much before uh, people entered into the picture in terms of what and how the Sundarbans was depicted and portrayed and the imagery of the Sundarbans. Um, It's a brackish water delta, so it's where the sea meets rivers and fresh water meets salt water. Um, It's a place where these islands are low-lying. So the inhabited islands depend on embankments because during a high tide, so there's a twice daily tide in the Sundarbans, um, and there's the low tide and high tide, and during high tide, these islands would be submerged if it weren't for these embankments. And that form of submergence is really lethal because it's saltwater, brackish water delta. And so saltwater destroys any of the sort of paddy agriculture, people's gardens with vegetables, their homes. Um, and so in some ways, it's a, it's a very unique ecology. It's a shifting landscape. Um, it's a, it's, it's got mangrove creeks and several different species species of mangrove trees um, and of course while it's famous for the tiger it's the the rivers of the Sundarbans have crocodiles sharks snakes several species of birds um, and there's a kind of there's a really so there, there's humans and non-human populations animal populations that live in this delta which make the region really really unique however I think internationally often what is forgotten is that it's not just a conservation hotspot which is home to the tiger. It's also home to 5 million people, many of them who are already ecological and political refugees. And we can talk about the histories of the people further um, as we go along. Many people have been raising concerns with the concrete embankments which were erected to protect local communities in the Sundaban. You know, those projects were taken at considerable cost. Why are these embankments not the best solution in your view? Right. Yeah. Thank you. That's a really, really important question. And this is a really relevant question for how the Sundarbans uh, reconstruction work will go along. And I think uh, government and non-government policymakers, uh, politicians really need to rethink um, 
how designs are implemented in the Sundarbans. So just briefly, I mean, embankments are, as I've mentioned, essential to Sundarban inhabitants uh, because there's an ideology that these embankments are lifelines. And this has been written about by different scholars in the Sundar- of the Sundarbans. Um, they're, they're lifelines because they prevent the salt water from coming in. And this allows for agriculture to flourish. Um, however, these concrete embankments, which were built in the Sundarbans after Cyclone Isla, which happened in 2009, are made out of cinder and cement. And these are very high and wide embankments. And a huge amount of money was allocated to, to, to rebuild these embankments. Um, and this money came from uh, the World Bank Group uh, towards the Sundarbans Embankment Reconstruction project. Um, And there's been a sense, at least in, you know, with local government in the Sundarbans, uh, village officials, the Pidhan, the Panchayat, um, as well as contractors, that this, these are stronger embankments, that these embankments will resist cyclones, tidal storms, uh, tidal surges. However, as Cyclone Amphan has proved, and actually even in Isla, we knew this, um, they've all cracked. And several of these so-called modern embankments have broken. Um, they've breached. They are absolutely not strong enough to withstand the forces of the cyclonic winds. Um, Cyclone Amphan had about 170 kilometers per hour and over winds. Um, and Basically, the cracking of the cement and cinder block embankments have meant that with their um, breakage, they've also broken the riverbed. And at several instances in several different blocks of the Sundarbans, entire riverbeds have gone under with these very heavy materials. Um, So this is deeply problematic. And actually, it points to a problem in design and in the way in which development is um, done in places like the Sundarbans, which is completely not in tune with the particular ecology. And so it's not in tune with what I've described to you in terms of the shifting landscape, the shifting uh, tidal um, uh, kind of ecology of the region and designs have to basically be much more cognizant of a particular ecology. Uh, and actually, I was present in the Sundarbans uh, when some of these so-called modern embankments were built. And when I spoke to the contractors that were assigned to build these, these, these are contractors who've gotten a bid to build these and do not know the Sundarbans. They do not know the landscape in which they're doing these construction projects. So in the South Asian subcontinent, as we know, both in Bangladesh and in India, uh, a lot of the kinds of development work is contracted out. um, And contractors are infamous for the sort of local nexus of corruption. So poor materials were used, but they were also just poorly designed. Um, So this is deeply problematic. We've seen how Cyclone Amphan has cracked these embankments. And actually, one of the lessons that we need to now going forward in the Sundarbans is um, think about better designs, which are attuned to the ecology. Um, And there's a lot of research which has happened on these places. There are a lot of historians, anthropologists, sociologists, landscape architects who've been working on this. So it's not as if we don't have the insights. We just need to be able to incorporate these insights into policy. Again, I know this has been um, a focal point in your research. How does the local community see their home? 
and what solutions do they think will help mitigate you know the impact of extreme weather events like cyclone amphan right and i think there are many contrasting perceptions on this um and one of the things that is important to point out here is that within a sundarbans uh, within one particular island in the sundarbans even there's a particular geography of inequality so the people who are the poorest and are often landless live on the river's edge and these are people who live right next to kind of these embankments and are the first to be hit uh, when there's a embankment breach or a flood and then there are people who live in the center of the island who are shopkeepers school teachers politicians and they are often slightly more landed and slightly better off than those who live on the edge so even within a particular island there are very different perceptions of how these development projects are viewed um and um the local uh, sort of populations in the sundarbans have certain ideas of what might improve um what might strengthen and sort of safeguard themselves and some of them are very small in terms of just the kinds of materials that one uses for construction whether it's their homes whether homes should be on higher grounds to so slightly raised platforms to prevent flooding uh, the kinds of materials that some of the government policies for for converting one's mud homes into brick homes uh, so tin roofs or corrugated roofs are terrible they fly off during the cyclonic winds um so the so the, these are really minute details of of the kinds of materials used the kinds of ways in which reconstruction could be ecologically sensitive and um people who live in the sundarbans are very aware of what would be better and what would not but there isn't in that sense a consultative process there isn't a conversation taking place between government officials um and sundarban residents or government officials and people who have done research with sundarban residents extensively over years whether it's historians or social scientists um from other disciplinary backgrounds so there really is a mismatch in both the combination of what people think and and what research insights have given us already and why do you think this consultation process hasn't happened either with the local community or with experts in different um subject areas yes um this goes back to um older histories of what this region has been famously known for and it goes back to how i sort of introduced this region which is what it is internationally famous as the home to the royal bengal tiger and so other academics uh, dr amitesh mukhopadhyay jadavpur university and uh, professor anu jale who's written a book called forest of tigers have argued this which is that the, the politics in the sundarbans has been tilted towards development meaning let's keep it underdeveloped and so there is a sense where the sundarbans is the sole province of the tiger um it is and it's not for the people and that people are encroaching on a uh, tiger territory um and in some ways this is really deeply problematic because some of these narratives even come from people who are residing in urban centers like kolkata uh, and it completely obliterates older histories for example in calcutta itself you know was a marsh um and so when it comes to you know who has encroached what who you know where have human settlements been where they shouldn't be um it's it's always the accusation and the blame is is on 
these communities who are uh, lower caste communities um, and are marginalized. And I said, they are refugees of ecological and political upheavals from the past who've made this region their home. Um, so yes, there's just, there, there is idea where these are, these are trespassing communities. They're not supposed to be there. Uh, they are interlopers, that this is a forest for tigers. Um, and that has been a large part of why this region has ignored at several different points the people who live there. You actually touched on a point that I wanted to bring up, which is that there's been some uh, writers and scholars who've highlighted that, you know, dating back to even the colonial era, the government has historically offered little help to, um, you know, victims of natural disasters. For example, take the 1876 Bengal cyclone. And um, they've, you know, doing that left them vulnerable to famine and even to the cholera epidemic, you know, with the government at the time trusting in the forces of demand and supply. So do you see any parallels between um, the situation then and now? Yeah, thank you for asking that question. I mean, I, I think that the governance of this region has not changed um, drastically uh, from, and you, you know, you bring up the colonial era, the colonial history of the Sundarbans is extremely um important and relevant even for today because the Sundarbans were seen and written about um, by several, uh, you know, colonial administrators and gazetteers of the region as a sodden wasteland. Um, and it had a kind of inscrutable geography and there was basically a region of kind of pathology, wandering gangs of woodcutters, and basically the tiger was at the time a menace. Um, and the region was uh, the intention of British um, administration was to clear the forests um, only when they discovered the, the revenue generating capacities of this region, both to put it under cultivation and for timber logging. And so the entire region and the entire history in, in large part of the Bengal Delta has been one of um, kind of extraction. Uh, and, and the people have not been in that sense relevant. Um, but I think over the years, even <clears throat> uh, post the kind of, you know, in, in post-colonial history and post-independence, the politics of life that you mentioned and the kinds of ways in which people have just not been cared for has not transformed. And I and I think um, some of the examples which highlight this is are just really fundamental examples where, um, for example, the, the island where I conducted long-term fieldwork in the Sundarbans, an island with 40,000 inhabitants, and it did not have a single primary healthcare uh, government clinic. So there's, there's not a single hospital in the Sundarbans for its residents. Um, so we can talk about the crisis of Cyclone Amphan and we can talk about the crisis of COVID. But even before the current crisis, um, in terms of what 2020 has brought uh, for the Sundarbans, but also the world over, before this, the Sundarbans still did not have basic access. Uh, Sundarban residents didn't have basic access to sanitation, to, to health care, um, at the time that I was conducting fieldwork, um, and this was just a few years ago, uh, there was no electricity. So things haven't really changed in that Sundarban residents have been both ignored and uncared for by government, um, 
and by non-governmental organizations uh, with the presence of non-governmental organizations being in large part for uh, the conservation of the flora and the fauna and the Bengal tiger. So I guess from what you're saying, you know, there hasn't really been much of a response to these issues over time. How has the nature of the Sundaban itself changed over time as a result of lack of consultation and lack of political will for a solution? And how has that impacted the lives of the community? Yeah, I mean, I think um, what it has done is that it has created um, particular forms of infrastructures which have poised the Sundarbans as a place that can be consumed by urban city dwellers to enjoy the natural beauty of this landscape and the tiger. And so what it's done is that uh, there's really a lack of political will in terms of building a hospital. However, there have been a lot of constructions, uh, new constructions in the form of tourist lodges. So one of the things that these islands have seen in the recent um, sort of decade or fifth, past 15 years has been eco quote-unquote ecotourism. Um, I wouldn't say that it's very eco. Um, there is a luxury cruise ship that runs in the Sundarbans. Um, there are very fancy um, kinds of lodges. And the kind of hope or the intention, at least on paper for some of them, is to generate alternative livelihoods. Um, however, actually, and this sort of brings me to the current crisis of Cyclone Amphan after after COVID, which is that a large part of people in the Sundarbans either depend on the, ma- the mangrove forest in front of their homes. Uh, some of them have small land holdings, but the majority of households have at least one or two members who migrate out for work. So you have people working uh, in Bangalore, in different parts of Kerala, in Maharashtra, in Gujarat. Uh, men go out to work in construction sites, on factory shop floors. They send remittances back home. And this is how they built their lives again after Cyclone Amphan. Men migrated out, sent back money, and homes were rebuilt after uh, Cyclone Isla. Sorry, this is in 2009. Um, this time around, one of the things that have radically changed the situation is that uh, people don't have the opportunities to migrate out to rebuild lives because of of COVID, because of um, the lockdown, um, and because of a completely changed landscape in in India with the migrant crisis. Uh, so there is a lack of political will. Um, there has been tourism that has uh, uh, that has kind of created very small amounts of employment. Um, you know, some of these lodges employ. 10 to 15 different individuals in an island, as I mentioned, of 40,000 people. Um, that's just a drop in the ocean. But the argument, of course, is that we're generating alternative livelihoods. Um, often this is sort of much more for urban dwellers to consume the Sundarbans. Um, and the politics is very much to have a Sundarbans, which is not for the people who live alongside it, but for outsiders to come and partake in its kind of natural beauty. And what do you think all these developments portents uh, for the wider region, you know, if it's continually ignored as it has been in the Sundaban? That's a really important question. And I just want to highlight that the there's a real hypocrisy and a real contradiction when it comes to who the Sundarbans wants to be and needs to be developed for. So in the Bangladesh side of the Sundarbans, um, there's um, and, and there's been 
protests and activists resisting this, but there's a construction of a coal pl- power plant has begun. It's called the Rampal plant. Um, and this is, you know, as I've mentioned, this is a fragile ecosystem. This is a unique ecosystem. Yet, of course, through actually Indian government's funding, uh, a coal plant um, is commissioned to be to, in the Sundarbans. Um, there are ship vessels which... Um, so the Sundarbans is also a transport corridor for uh, ships that carry things from uh, the port of Kolkata to the port of Dhaka. So you have ship vessels often carrying uh, toxic materials like fly ash uh, from Kolkata to Dhaka in the same landscape. Um, you have luxury cruisers, as I have mentioned, and several fleets of tourist boats um, in the same delta, you have tourism allow, uh, you know, the government isn't clamping down on tourism, but simultaneously, um, the, the area has been cordoned off from fishing communities. A large part of the Sundarbans has been made to be cut off from, uh, fishermen who are crab collectors, honey collectors who go on their wooden boats because the area has become a sanctuary. So these are kind of classic debates in in what um, parks are and protected areas and the conflicts of local people's livelihoods. But I guess I just want to really highlight that for the larger region of, you know, the Sundarbans in Bangladesh and in India, uh, there really is a, a, a kind of lopsided uh, politics of what is being allowed to develop um, and so big industry is flourishing in the region, whether it's a coal plant or, or whether it's a luxury cruiser. Um, but local inhabitants don't still have a hospital um, and aren't being allowed to pursue their livelihoods in this forest. The Sundarban straddles this border um, of India and Bangladesh. Has there been any similarities in the government response how have the two countries kind of responded to the current situation? Right. I mean, in the there's a slight um, difference in the in in what the Sundarbans in the West Bengal side is, which comprises of inhabited villages and as well as the forest. Whereas in the Bangladesh side, when one says the Sundarbans, they only mean um, the forest. Um, but in terms of the issues I've highlighted, uh, in terms of the kinds of embankments um, and the low-lying delta, uh, the kind of southern delta of both India and Bangladesh, um, there are very similar challenges. Um, and government responses have been also similarly apathetic. Uh, it's been it's it's you know very densely populated regions, um, and it and relief has entered in both areas through philanthropic organizations, smaller grassroots organizations, uh, a combination of fishers unions who've been working for a long time and and local NGOs. Um, Government responses have been very, I mean, there's, there are, there are certain examples of just not just deep apathy, but, um, I have friends in the Sundarbans who went to their local through the BDO office to try and seek assistance and help and were turned away uh, because the BDO was very busy in preparing for uh, Modi's aerial visit in the area and couldn't really uh, pay attention to people who come from the Sundarbans. And so there's a sort of 
real kind of lack i mean there's a maze of governance uh, which residents do not have know how to operate in both areas and that's because of what i've shared with you which is that this is a region which is both um the forest department is quite active here conservation ngos are quite active here the irrigation department is in charge of the embankments um there's something called the sundarbans development board which is supposed to do um the development affairs in the region so a common man or woman that resides in the sundarbans does not know where to go to seek help in a moment of disaster and there's a complete chaos in terms of the maze of governance and who is really accountable and responsible for providing care is unclear and it's actually been made unclear on purpose so that nobody actually holds responsibility for governance of this region and everybody can blame some other government ministry what do you think needs to change in order for the situation in the sundarban to change yeah thank you i think one of the things that that does really need to change is um a a kind of attunement to the specific um ecology of the sundarbans um and also just a wider realization um and a particular politics which does prioritize residents of the sundarbans alongside all of the other inhabitants of this really incredible and very special delta and so there has to be a politics of governance where both the tiger populations the crocodile populations the fish the really incredible sort of fauna is conserved alongside the people who live there and who are really deeply intertwined and a part of this ecology um and right now i think that mindset of the sundarbans people as not being um sort of important citizens because in some ways that it's also a borderland a lot of them have come from bangladesh um or current day bangladesh at the time of india's partition or at the uh, in in the sort of late 60s and early 70s during the creation of bangladesh and so there's a real um narrative both whether it's to do with the politics of of india right now and the indian subcontinent of outsiders migrants immigrants muslims um of sundarban residents being second class citizens and it's a kind of conjugated form of dispossession which is both at the level of citizenship but also at the level of being secondary to the sort of royal bengal tiger in the region um and th- there shouldn't be it is it needn't be one or the other it can be a form of development that can take into consideration both these forms of lives um human and animal lives and this is um this might and should translate into really minute changes which are actually quite significant so the materials we use for embankments the materials we use for the reconstruction of homes um taking into consideration the research that has been done in this region um taking into consideration the actual opinions and perceptions of the people who live there and organizations that have been working with communities in the sundarbans and so as you said you know just a much more participatory a consultative process would allow for um reconstruction at a local level not at a centralized level but a much more decentralized level um would allow for for a for a path ahead where where the citizens who've just been completely ignored really now for you know an entire century would hopefully um in in the years ahead and as climate change gets worse and as cyclones get worse be able to 
inhabit what is their home with with dignity and a sense of broader well-being thank you so much for joining us megna thank you thank you for your questions